to to change the the way the Russians have to use those those systems. Uh, I I covered this in brief earlier. I'll try to do it even briefer uh, this time. But essentially, S three hundred, S four hundred, and again, you know, these are basically the same system. Um, are primarily as dangerous as they are because they operate on on sensor data coming in from uh, you know wildly removed um sensor platforms like um airborne early warning radar if if ukraine can force them to be a much more selective about the targets that they engage uh and be uh, much more cautious about when they are willing to radiate then they can seriously degrade russia's ability to control the airspace and if you think about this in in the the biggest picture uh the radar on on these systems if they are operating under local control can only see about 20 to 25 kilometers depending on the terrain but those missiles are capable of shooting 400 kilometers if you put the russians in a position where they have to operate those systems from say 100 kilometers back well that means that none of those systems are able to actually give cover to troops on the ground at the line of contact uh, except when they have an airborne early warning radar in the area um which is which is not that common russia doesn't appear to be able to provide 24 7 airborne early warning radar coverage uh not in the way that that you know in western militaries we take it for granted that we will have AWACS in the air around the clock and if we don't have AWACS we will be supplementing that with p8s or rc-135s or other um surface search platforms so at the moment one of the things that we've been looking at um or i've been looking at in detail is i've been trying to find evidence of russia attempting to shoot high miles down um we've only got a couple of videos from a couple of attempts but none of them have been successful if s400 cannot intercept high miles and there are a couple of reasons that you can go into as to why this is so difficult but in brief they do not appear to have been successful in any of the uh, cases that I've been able to document, then then they have to pull those systems back. If they have to pull those systems back and they have to operate those systems under local control, then that, that anti-air bubble isn't protecting troops on the front if there's no control node directing uh systems shorter range systems like Panzer, book tor so on and so, so forth then ukraine can do two things one they can map the locations of these systems using their own radar emissions and therefore uh, look at a map and figure out where they can fly to get between these air defense systems. And second, if they don't want to go deep into Russian territory, they don't even need to try to figure out how to get that uh, to get that elaborate. The fact that the Russians won't be able to uh, deny that airspace to Ukraine over the line of contact means that Ukraine will be able to fly close air support missions, which up to this point they've not really been able to do. So it's it's a it's a a radical transformation uh, going from contested airspace where neither side really has particular claim to the aerial advantage to a situation where without shooting down a single fighter 
Ukraine now has partial air superiority. Is there any historical example of this, Portland, where a country with an air force 10% of the size of their opponent has achieved air superiority in their airspace? Maybe Israel? Um, there's two, um, but one of them, there's the Falklands War. Uh, the the If you're looking at what the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy was actually able to get down to the South Atlantic versus what Argentina could throw around. Nobody thought the RAF slash fleet air arm had a cat's chance in hell. Fortunately, thanks to the largesse of our American friends, we had the latest version of Sidewinder and history um, decided that um, better missiles was better than um, more airframes. Uh, the the other was um, Israel at the beginning of the Six Days War. But the significant thing about that is that the Arab Air Forces were largely destroyed on the ground because the Israelis decided to get airborne and get their, get their hits in first. Yeah, this, the story goes that the entire Egyptian Air Force took tea at like 1130 or whatever. And so they just blew them all up at the time. But I don't know if that's true. But yeah, OK. So there maybe are two historical examples. But yeah, in terms of uh, it's very unusual, we'll say, for, for this type of an aerial situation, I think, on the ground. But uh, if you wanted to finish up anything about that, go ahead, Portland. Yeah, I mean, it's it is unprecedented after the battle has really been joined that you have a situation where the side which has the notional technological advantage, which is Russia, and more airframes, Russia, um, more pilots, Russia, and more practice in joined-up, coherent uh, aerial operations, again, Russia, is in the situation of losing air superiority to the other side that's that's never happened before that i'm aware of thank you portland and uh, with that we'll open it up to questions i uh, will go harm then liberal harm go ahead uh portland hi thank you um you mentioned something earlier that in that the warehouse that uh, blew up in nova Karkova, um was uh, holding all the s300 s400 missiles uh, for the entire south if i got that right is it true? Um, certainly everything that isn't already in a missile tube or on a transloader. Yeah. Oh, great. Exactly. That's the right pitch for me for the question I had. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you can speak to that. I assume that is public information that you're disseminating here, that uh, that kind of ammunition was in that warehouse. And on the other hand, so the second part is, uh, what is out there into the tubes and in the reloader vehicles? I mean, that is still a substantial threat to Ukrainian Air Force. So, um, and I assume those uh, S-300 and especially S-400 systems are actually quite dangerous to airframes. Um, let's say the SU-25s, the Ukrainians operate for close support. Um, uh, what, what kind of advantage is it? really giving Ukrainians, considering those units are still out and they can fire their four shots at incoming airframes? And um, um, would it be nice to actually see the, well, we're probably not going to see that, but, but to to have the direct destruction of those launcher, radar, targeting command units of those S-300, 400s on the ground, would it be uh, required for actually them getting into his air superiority situation that we would like them to be in? So to an extent, yes, it would be nice, but it's not really necessary. Uh, and you, you've only got to think of it uh, in, in one kind of layer. Uh, how, how willing are you going to be to chance an ambiguous shot if you know you have no reload? Right? Would you take a risk on a 400 kilometer engagement if you knew that you had the four missiles that you have in your tubes and that's it? 
Because it's just a dot, right, Portland? I mean, they're not seeing the plane. It's just a dot on the radar. Yeah, you you don't you don't know what that track is. And that is uh, for when all the um, um, footage is seen from any airframes on both sides, is they're flying ultra low right now to evade um, anti-air. That's that's what we've seen for for months now. That's happening on both sides. So the advantage for the Ukrainians would be to be in higher altitude um, and having. Um, better angles on their targets to fly in uh, once those units are out. And oh, also, you, you didn't um, respond to the um, in first part of my question that um, how do we know that those ammunitions were actually in that depot? So the the way we know is that we can look at the specific intensity of the detonations. We can look at the color of the smoke. Uh, and we can compare those against... As, now, this is almost unique in in the strikes that I've been looking at recently, because I could look at this from, like I said earlier, seven different angles, which means that I could actually measure uh, relative radiant intensity from different angles and different distances and measure the drop-off to determine um, so that I didn't have to... What's the best way of putting this? Um, If you only get one measurement, you don't know how much your measurements are being thrown off by the quality of the sensor that you're looking at it through, right? If you've got seven different images showing the same thing, you you can actually compare from all of those different images you can look at okay what's the specific intensity coming off of this one versus this one given that we know um how far each of these sensors was from the from the explosion there should be a square function decrease with range so if I have one of these um, sensors is giving me a wildly different result from the others, I know that I can disregard that one because I'm I'm getting some sort of noise or it's just not a very good camera or whatever, right? So you can look at the color of the smoke uh, is the first thing. So Russia uses... Um, two main types of rocket propellant, uh, which is, well, three, actually. Um, the, the the three main types are hydroxyl-terminated, polybutadine, um, butadine acrylonitrile, and whatever unnamed thing they use in their uh, grud and smudge rockets. I don't actually know what the, the third one is. Um, or yeah, I've I've read a lot of manuals, but they are ambiguous as to what the propellant actually is. So, uh, hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene gives you a very clean looking, very dense gray white smoke. Um, polybutadiene acrylonitrile gives you a greenish yellow smoke that is much thinner. So you've got the color of the smoke. The color of the smoke says this was hydroxyl-terminated polybutadine. Um, the next thing that you have is the the measurements that I can get off, off the uh, specific intensity from all of these images, right? That can, you can work backwards from there and you can say, okay, so this was a point source that was burning, uh, Okay, the frequency, the wavelength of light that a given heat source emits is a function of the square of the temperature at which it burns, right? So if you know what color light is coming off it, you know how hot it's burned. So given that we know that we're looking at a rocket exhaust, we can look at that and say, well, we know that this is an LED. Therefore, we can process this as a thermal event and we can look at the temperature of the rocket exhaust, basically. 
that's that's your second big piece of information the the extreme kinematic performance that these surface to air missile systems uh attain is dependent on their use of a very high density very high temperature fuel and the highest density highest temperature fuel that the russians have is hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene everything that i'm looking at here actually the ukrainians said that it was a storage depot for smerch rockets i respectfully beg to differ the the um the thermal signatures that i was looking at were probably 50% too hot to be smelch so once you you take these things all into consideration and you look at the fact that you know it continued to burn we got lots of very very uh telling ejector fans um which were burning at a consistent temperature all the way through their their arcs we got a a whole bunch of telltales like that when you put all of those details together the only option that you are left with is that these were s400 slash s300 missiles very very detailed answer so um to to recap um for um me and the audience so based on the intensity of the light you can tell the temperature and let's say from the color of the light you can um narrow it down to one of those three propellants that are known to be used by the russians uh, that uh, is it a fair summary uh so from the intensity and wavelength of the light that gives you um the temperature of the exhaust from the color of the smoke that gives you the uh the chemical composition of the precursor and it is all well in the range of the ccd cameras of, of um the cell phones that are recording those videos yes so the closest cell phone footage that i had from this one was three and a half kilometers the furthest cell phone footage i had was 15.5 kilometers um i disregarded one of the cell phone videos because i just concluded that it was a potato camera um but the uh the others were all giving me more or less consistent readings so portland just to summarize so you said the novakhovka thing that blew up yesterday that that were likely s300 s400 rockets in there not just usual artillery shells and smerch and grad and so on Yes um so the smoke that you get off um grad or smelt rockets is a sort of a dirty uh white brown um and it's quite thin so you've got to consider the particle density and the particle reflectivity right if you have um a really bright clean white smoke then that is very complete combustion product um meaning it's not producing any soot it's converting the maximum possible amount of your chemical makeup into heat so the generally speaking with the smoke the hotter you run the cleaner the resulting smoke and the denser so what i'm thinking about is A they probably had a bunch of different stuff in there not not just one type of things right because the because of the location primarily as you said there were there were few trucks right next to it and i'm guessing that's because it was right next to the railway and it was just all the stuff it wasn't just one one type of things or the other i mean i guess that one you know the the s300 s400 rockets has so much propellant in it that probably if there were some that probably kind of dominated everything but the other thing i'm thinking about is you know if you have lots of stuff close together that burns very hot and all kind of catches fire at the same time even if my, i would believe that there's a tendency for everything all together in a big pile like that to tend to burn a little bit hotter than normal right um because there is such a concentration of it and because heat doesn't get to dissipate as effectively and therefore also the things that wouldn't burn as effect is is cleanly burn a little bit more cleanly right 
such as you know Coke versus coal. Would there, is, is that is that a possible confounding variable here? Um, not really. Um, so the the thing is is that your if you've got a a concentrated pile of potential fuel then yes, that will tend to burn hotter than a more diffuse pile. Um, but there's only so close together you can get this stuff. And the, the, um, the measurements that I was able to get on the total, um, total power of the blast um, doesn't take into consideration the fire that raged there over 12 hours, right? This is just measurements of the initial blast, which was hugely dominated by by rocket fuel. I see. Right. So basically, you're saying the initial blast was probably mostly S300s, S400s, whatever. And then as this other stuff elsewhere was cooking off later on, that, that probably contained other things as well. Yes, exactly so. Makes sense. Okay, that's, that's good. I mean, and I'm guessing hitting the, the hottest burning thing first, right? That is going to make the fire more likely to spread elsewhere as well. That's a, um, maybe, maybe strategy, maybe luck, but either way, that's a, that's a good hit. Um, yeah, excellent. Um, sorry, uh, let's uh, let's go on to liberal. I just wanted to clarify some stuff. This is very fascinating to me for obvious reasons, beyond the fact that lots of Ukrainian stuff went boom. Liberal, sorry, hey, lots of Russian stuff went boom. Yeah, no worries. Uh, great, great questions. Um, I'm trying to fall asleep here, but um, the conversation is uh, electric. Uh, Portland, I uh, wanted to ask you, um, given the fact that the Pantsir tour or uh, book S400 or uh, S300 have been unable to uh, successfully take down a high marge round. Um, is that a fluke or is that the Russians inability, you know, their, their uh, missile defense inability to, um, you know, counter um, the high marge uh, munitions? Honestly, there's, there's, it's, <laughs> It, there's never a good time in war to just look at something and call it a fluke. Um, that's it, it's not you. You don't know what's luck and what's not until the fighting's over. Are you confident, based on the data that you've seen, that the uh, Russians maybe overhyped the um, capabilities of the S four hundred? Because it seems that that is the case. I I think that they did. Uh, I was pretty confident going into this that the Russians were overselling specifically the S-300S continuing to attempt to engage HIMARS um, with no successes. Yeah, I'll but just follow up with uh, one should look no further than Snake Island as uh, Exhibit A, but thank you. Um, I'm going to drop down and I got to work tomorrow. Dolman. Yes, I, I've got time for like one or two more questions and I actually have to go to bed. I've, I've got a good question, I think. And thank you, Liberal. Uh, sleep well. Um, Portland, what's the significance of this? This is a big depot. It's very close to the front lines in Kherson where uh, um, you know there's a, there's a Ukrainian counterattack. What's the significance on this? And we also have special Kherson capital. I'm sure wants to uh, come up and in, in, in comment in due course as well. I mean... For me, the significance is is pretty clear. Um, Ukraine is um, it's it's looking at the situation in the south of Ukraine and saying, you know, I I like my odds down there right now. Individually, one strike never tells you anything, but viewing this strike in context with all of the other big strikes of the last week, which have all been major supply depots in the south of Ukraine, um, and with the fact that they have killed um, the, the, uh, the chief of staff of an entire Russian army group, the entire command staff of a Russian uh, motor rifle division, um, at least three 
battalion size headquarters in the same area and now they've just killed all of the reload for everything that makes russian integrated air defense systems fundamentally dangerous like they're winding up for something guys so so portland we got special kersan cat here uh special kersan cat has been uh following very closely the developments in kersan of course because they're from uh, the kersan area originally chernovayevka and uh they've actually posted a couple of unique photos uh one was quite interesting to me which was uh, they showed uh, uh, an image of a building where the windows had been blown in in terms of, so it might have given us some sense of the strength of the explosion. Uh, I think uh, you named it distance. But Special Care Zone, Kat, did you have a question for Portland before he goes to bed? Go ahead. Yeah, I actually have one question for Portland. I do not know if it uh, was uh, answered before. But uh, I wanted to ask about what do you think about the official version of Russian propaganda, like that uh, it was just Warhouse uh, with Saltpeter? So what are thoughts about? It's, it's complete, complete bunk. So two things. One, um, potassium nitrate burns with a pale purple flame. I don't know about you, but that wasn't a pale purple fucking flame. Um, second, you would need such a stupendous, ungodly quantity of this material to to achieve that kind of explosive effect. So, no, that's that's nonsense. Um, third, uh, potassium nitrate doesn't produce secondaries or ejector streams. Rocket fuel does. And the, all of these explosions are really showing, all of the different angles of this explosion are showing massive ejector streamers. Um, so, I'm sorry, guys, that's rocket propellant. Shock, horror, surprise, the Russians lied. Portland, quick question. Um, I just saw an image earlier this morning, and uh, my first response was, okay, it has burned out already. How is that possible? Maybe you can explain to people how quickly uh, you would expect if rocket propellant is on one side, and seemingly um, this was a steel and concrete structure, um, so reinforced steel bars, concrete walls, whatnot, um, how quickly rocket propellant uh, can burn out if highly concentrated. Oh, I mean, if you think about it, you know, um, the the whole game of designing uh, and developing solid rocket boosters is actually slowing the combustion down enough for you to control it. And you primarily do that by limiting the surface area over which the fuel will burn. So a solid rocket motor is basically a steel or aluminium tube which has a uh, a liner of rocket propellant cast into it with a hole down the side uh you you start the rocket propellant burning and uh the gases are concentrated in the in the cavity and are expelled out of the back so if you subject that kind of a device to a powerful concussive shock such that you produce uh, cracks in the solid propellant which has a consistency like a very hard rubber right this isn't a powder this is this is a solid um then you you get cracks right and those cracks will tend to propagate violently throughout the uh um throughout the structure as heat is generated and the whole assembly will just blow itself to pieces and since you now have very very large surface areas which are now undergoing this reaction it will burn itself out i would say probably the rocket so that that particular blast um burned for about 12 hours but the rocket propellant was probably burned out in under five minutes. And the rocket propellant just uh, then literally uh, accelerated the other burn also, right? Because 12 hours for an ammunition depot where they should have had a lot of TNT as well. And whatever else. Um, I was just surprised, honestly. I, I saw the photo. I thought, that's quick. It, it, it just didn't have um, much to burn. The, the thing is, is that 
Um, that is a little bit hard to tell because that is really subject to local conditions in in a way that like from from Portland viewing this through you know uh, six good cameras and one potato you know I I can't measure that so you know I'm I don't know um, it could have been that there was not a whole hell of a lot of anything else there it could have been that um once you have everything burning um accelerated by the rocket fuel actually this is a really good example here um if you take a um a roughly cylindrical uh chunk of wood about six inches across and you start that thing burning from the bottom then you will probably burn through that wood in Oh, you can probably burn that for like 35 to 40 minutes. If, on the other hand, you put that chunk of wood in a pan of gasoline and you light the gasoline on fire, you will have no more chunk of wood left in under five minutes. So either conjecture is plausible. The The thing that we do know is that they had um, 50 fuel tankers parked there as well. Um, so was this a mostly empty depot i don't know that seems implausible um was it full to the brim and the fire burned out relatively quickly because everything had been accelerated by the rocket propellant that seems plausible but i can't, i don't know because i can't measure it thank you portland uh Kirsten, got any uh, follow-up follow questions there i don't know uh... Maybe just one. Uh, is there a way to estimate like uh, the like the pressure or how strong the shock wave was from the explosion? Because like uh, I've contacted with one of the locals from uh, Novokakhovka, and uh, I think that the most uh, distant place where the windows were broken is exactly two miles away from the explosion. Like some maybe there's some mess behind it to calculate what was like the strength of this shockwave so um that's the furthest away that we know about for sure um but i'm pretty sure that this thing was putting out a a not inconsiderable pressure wave but the other thing to bear in mind about here is that a pressure wave is a matter of uh, energy released per unit time and rocket propellant no matter how energetic it is doesn't release all of its energy instantaneously it releases all of its energy over a space of several seconds so the standing pressure wave that you would expect if this was being detonated as a high explosive if you had the same energy density that was all released all in one go you would ex you would have expected from from this quantity of material you would have expected people to get knocked off their feet you know five miles um you wouldn't expect you know massive damage at that distance but like there's going to be a, a a not inconsiderable pressure wave because in this case we've got the bulk of the energy uh being released over the space of around five to seven seconds um you you still get a lot of energy released but it it's not instantaneous i'm sort of going in circles sorry uh so um based on the luminous intensity over distance um the um and the um sorry how loud uh all of these phone pickups um were um receiving the sound uh i was able to sort of work backwards from there ignore my outlier and i came up with with a figure that is something between 150 and 200 tons of tnt equivalent released over the course of about five ish seconds which, by the way, is how I did the math on working out uh, how many rounds must have been stored there. Because, you know, once you know what quantity of explosive, uh, what quantity of energy was released, well, now you're just dividing um, 
uh, energy by um, by payload. Any uh, final questions to Portland there, Kirsten Cat? I think he's going to bed. So if you've got a final question, go ahead. Um, I'm not, maybe. Like, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's then go to finance and then we'll turn our attention back to Special Harrison Cat because we have some questions for Special Harrison Cat afterwards after uh, Portland uh, got some, get some well-deserved rest. How about that? Uh, finance. Hey, Portland. Nice to see you all and uh, everyone else here as well. See this evening here in the States, morning Europe. Um, <coughs> with the size of this huge uh, ammo explosion, uh, was there anything like this in, say, World War One? Because while we're pretty sure Russia seems to have some sort of indefinite amount of Soviet supplies of dumb rockets to fire, I don't know if they have infinite amounts of uh, dumb rockets that can blow up like this, right? Like, this is a lot of stuff they keep losing. Yeah, so the, the thing is, is that if you just look at the... Um, the big the the three biggies over the last four days um you know just those three strikes alone was a minimum of 400 tons of 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 explosive equivalent of of tnt equivalent so i i'm I'm looking at that and i'm i've got to say they've got to be feeling the pinch at this point you know, if we if we do some fairly rough back of the envelope math, you know, I I think that Russia at the moment is looking at a an overall rough twenty percent diminution in their ability to supply their artillery force. Um, when is there some sort of mathematical rate of uh, is somebody keep a chart of? I know there's all this charting for how much stuff is being fired by the Russians. Does someone have like a simple mathematical equation they do daily just to see what the rate of fire is to see when we'll start to try to sort of check fluctuations in that for when mathematically that might say go down? Um, There isn't, but you know what? There should be. Um, I'm not sure that I can do that, but I would definitely like to know. You know, I'm not a military guy, but I do know how to mess with numbers. Maybe we should discuss this offline and figure out how all right, Portland. I think uh, we've we've uh, run your endurance long enough. If you got to go to bed, I think uh, might be might well, be time we to. We have another we have another question uh, which came up from a discussion uh, vis-a-vis uh, the Russian government claiming in the last few hours that uh, the Ukrainians only struck a fertilizer storage. Let's discuss as to why this is not fertilizer. Um, so we we covered it in brief. I can just recover it here. This will just have to be the last thing I do before I uh, I go to bed. So um, the specific chemical compound that they said that it was was um, potassium nitrate. Potassium nitrate burns with a purple flame. This was not a purple flame. Okay, I don't care how many different ways the Russians want to. Uh, spin this one the flame wasn't fucking purple therefore it wasn't potassium nitrate um thanks it it it, it doesn't produce ejector streamers it doesn't produce secondaries it you, you would need thousands of tons of potassium nitrate to do this there would be a goddamn mushroom cloud it wasn't potassium potassium nitrate it just wasn't and anybody who wants to say that it was is welcome to come to Portland and I will fucking fight you. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> sweet dreams, Portland. Dream of uh, Russian S-300 uh, storage depots exploding, all right? All right. Good night, y'all. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Mate. I'm Mike right. not ladies, ladies and Go gentlemen, it is quarter past 10 in the morning in Central Europe, quarter past 11 in Kiev, quarter past 9 in London, it is uh, an awful, awful early uh, old dark 30 or old dark 16 on the east coast of the US. Uh, and it's just after 1 a.m. in California. Um, we are the Walter Report here talking about Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the genocide that Russians are committing against Ukrainians 24-7 since February 24th. That is, they're committing the genocide 24-7 since February 24th, and we're here 24-7 since February 24th. Um, we are joined by two Ukrainians at the moment, special Kherson Kat and Slava Ukraini. Um, 
I have a couple of questions about uh, the Hudson Oblast, uh, two special Hudson cat, but if Slavo Karini wishes to uh, make a comment or a question first, Slavo Karini. Uh, hello, I'm so I actually have a different uh, saying. Uh, want to say so, Kherson cut. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I don't know what to say about it. I see that you already discussed uh, all important information from Hawk and you've started to discuss it already, like from the moment of the event. So I don't know. Uh, I cannot just comment from what I did. Like uh, I was able to get some info from like people in Novakachovka about like uh, just uh, like you can imagine how this uh, explosion was powerful so um, in one girl's apartment one and a half months away from the explosion a roof has fallen on her bed in her flat and uh, another guy who lives uh, about two miles away from the explosion like uh, the windows in uh, his uh, um, his uh, house uh, were broken. Like just uh, it's uh, like still for me, like it's hard to imagine uh, what like, the like, what have people experienced and how big this uh, damage was. But it's also interesting, like that those people are like uh, happy. <laughs> it's like uh, we have uh, like um, sent messages to each other, and they are happy, and they uh, say like. Uh, uh, not worrying about uh, the uh, like the apartment, but uh, they're cheering on uh, that uh, the ox have made such a beautiful fire. Like, uh, I don't know like I'm, how people feel who are lived like uh, close to the explosion. I I think it was very like uh, terrifying experience, but at least like people who were living at least a little bit far away from it, like uh, are more or less uh, appreciating what the uh, Ukrainian armed, armed forces to, are doing. Yeah, so I'm just like also want to congratulate us and to say thank you to Russian workers who have stocked ammunition in one place for the beautiful firework that we've been able to experience. And uh, yeah, I want to confirm it that uh, have have reports uh, before this uh, explosions, meaning that how people react, how Ukrainians react when they say some the personal belongings are destroyed, but how they people just uh, saying that ah oh, it's okay we're gonna rebuild it we're gonna gonna live before if they they like uh, mentioned that main things that we not injured we not suffered any uh, personal damages uh, so to the body so it's like a for me it's really really like a, I'm on the west for me it's really interesting how people how how the Ukraine regular Ukraine are strong. They home is destroyed, but they ah hey, it's okay. We're gonna rebuild it, so it's a process. It's for me, it's actually real heroes uh, that people have this standing. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, do you have any questions? I do, I do. So special cat. I kind of flagged this to you yesterday already, but yesterday we heard that um, two uh, anti-aircraft batteries were taken out by uh, Ukraine. One close to Novokhovka, the other one somewhere in Oleshki Sands, right, or, or on the edge of Oleshki Sands. And that kind of triggered a memory for me for um, maybe late March, early April, when we got some news that Russians were actually digging themselves into trenches in the Oleshki Sands. Now, maybe I dreamt it, but I don't think I did. I think I actually remember this happening. So um, can you maybe outline to all of us a little bit, because, you know, you're kind of from close by. I'm sure you visited Oleshki Sands at some point, right? Because it's kind of like a nature park and so on. Um, what the landscape there is like um, and whether you heard something about Russians actually digging themselves into trenches in Oleshki Sands as well. Uh, so, yes, they're digging there. And uh, it's hard to say where exactly because uh, they not allow people like to the forest, to these areas now. Uh, even the firefighters. Uh, I don't know have you if you have follow up like the history of fires which were uh, in Kherson uh, forest after the Russian invasion, but it was like terrifying. Like uh, the fires, uh, were the size of the Kherson city um, in this forest, and uh, they have not allowed firefighters to go and uh, to do their job. Like um, like as they say by themselves, because uh, everything is mined up there. And uh, 
us. It uh, may be resulting in some casualties. But um, it's hard to say where they are exactly in this forest because it's massive. And uh, there are not a lot of people living there, like in this whole area of Aleshkivsky uh, sands and the uh, like Aleshki forest. Um, but they are there. Like uh, it's totally for sure because uh, there are tons of evidence that uh, when Russians shooting uh, smash rockets or their air defense rockets, they are coming from the uh, from the forest and from the Aleshkivsky sands. Like that's a ton of evidence from people from Kherson, from Aleshki, that uh, that's the location where they launch uh, rockets from, from uh, Aleshkivsky Pesky and from the forest. And also, like uh, there is one. Uh, village next to Oleshkivsky Pesky, it's called uh, Radinsk, and Russians are using it for um, for train uh, transport of their stuff from Crimea. Like they are not able to transport stuff to Kherson because Kherson is uh, within the range of Ukrainian artillery, like even was before the HIMARS arrived in the front, and uh, they're using like uh, Radinsk as their like most close uh, place to the front line where they upload stuff from and down to train. Um, and there is also next to Radinsk, a uh, Ukrainian uh, military base, which was abandoned. Um, like uh, they have also like shoot their like propaganda pictures, videos from this base, like and shown uh, like the abandoned equipment, which were left by Ukrainian uh, like um, forces. So it's just, uh, the Oleshki was used, the Oleshki was used uh, even uh, before the Russian invasion as a, for military person, uh, for military purposes, as a military polygon for training. So in other words, the Russians are digging themselves into the Ukrainian equivalent of the Salisbury Plain somewhere. Yeah, they are digging up themselves in this Oleshki uh, Skipeski. And uh, they are also constructing, like if you look at this... Uh, uh, North Crimean Canal. Like there's also evidence that they are digging up their trenches, defensive lines uh, along the uh, North Crimea, Crimean Canal in Kherson Oblast. It's a little bit further away than uh, the Oleshkivsky like, Pesky and the forest. Uh, uh, but it's like coming from the Novokakhovka all the way to Armyansk. Like, uh, and it's uh, 100 meters uh, like uh, width this canal, so uh, they are using it as uh, like a secondary defensive line in case if Ukrainians will advance in uh, deep parts of Kherson region. Thank you, Special Cat. Um, Luca. Good morning. Um, yeah, I was thinking a couple of interesting things. I wanted to hear like uh, your thoughts. Uh, so two questions. One, have you seen uh, uh, some like Abrams moving from Lithuania towards Ukraine? Is is that like to move them at the border or are they thinking to supply to Ukraine? Probably going to Poland is my guess. Domin, have you seen this video? I have. Yeah, that's probably going to Poland. Um, they're probably, you know, repositioning the forward NATO deployment and the like, or possibly, hopefully, they're actually uh, moving some American tanks to give to Poland because that would... There was some speculation on the internet day or two ago uh, that um, uh, Poland might be willing to give up 200 plus uh, T-72 Twardy derivatives, the PT-91s, um, if they got Abrams' backfill. And the PT-91s are, well, they're, they're pretty high, well upgraded T-7, basically, like thoroughly upgraded, you know, after Poland was no longer run by the Soviets as a, as a Soviet puppet state. Um, so that'd be pretty good. Uh, that'd be pretty useful for uh, for Ukrainians to have, you know, a few hundred pretty good tanks. Got it, got it. And then the other thing that I read, which I, I don't know how to judge, um, but uh, I, I think it's also related to to HIMARS, is this statement that uh, Iran will provide, like, drones. So, um, yeah, like, it seems to be that, like, um, it's related to like trying to spot the HIMARSes. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's kind of like ridiculous that Russia needs to get uh, technology from Iran. But, uh, you know, let it be, whatever it is. Uh, um, are, are we concerned about that? I would say, like, so we, we actually had a discussion about this earlier today. Um, like, Yehuda came on, I think he had the best information. Everyone was kind of like, we don't really know a ton about the Iranian drone program. So Yehuda kind of like laid it out as best he could. 
he basically said like Iranian drones are pretty capable, like comparatively, they've focused on drones for a lot longer than most countries. It's basically been they're almost the sole focus of their military development efforts for the last 10 to 20 years. Um, and Iran has a drone program that stretches back to actually the late 80s uh, for various reasons. So um, they're pretty good with drones. Um, it's definitely going to help Russia. Like they, Iran does have better drone technology and capability than Russia does. Um, but uh, we just don't have enough specifics about what Russia or sorry, what Iran's actually providing to Russia. When we say hundreds of combat drones are, are being sent from Iran, like, I mean, that's probably I mean, hundreds of quadcopters, like hundreds of actual, uh, you know, you know, Bayraktar equivalent drones. Like, what does that actually mean? Probably my guess is if we're saying hundreds of drones and we're not being specific, it's probably not a significant um, enough amount to really affect the outcome of the war in any meaningful way. So I would say until we actually see evidence of like significant numbers of, you know, larger than quadcopter drones coming from Iran, it's probably not too much to worry about. But Doman, do you have any thoughts? No, I know nothing about the Iranian drones. Yeah, we honestly, it doesn't seem like the capabilities are that well known, Luca, in terms of, you know, we, we've seen a couple of like the, the Saudi Aramco attack and a few others. But in terms of like their military uh, capabilities, they're more capable than than we would expect in terms of a country of Iran's like standing or, or power. But they're, we don't know what the baseline is exactly. Go ahead. But the, the timing, uh, the timing of the statement uh, uh, you know, whether whether it's factually is going to have an impact or not, but the timing you, you guys agree with me that uh, it, it seems to be related to the fact that the Russians have no clue what to do with all those high marses, right? Yeah, we, we had a little bit of speculation about that. So the speculation was Russia's probably going to every country that is still willing to take them in and, and asking them for, you know, artillery or any kind of weapons. My guess is, and someone else speculated this, there's some like dispute over the cat, like there's oil in the Caspian Sea, basically, and there's some like disputes between Iran and Russia about it, in my understanding. And maybe Iran is hoping to, to sort of angle for, for either either that or some other, you know, uh, uh, concession from Russia in exchange for helping out here. But we really don't know any details in terms of uh, like what Iran's objectives are. I think the most obvious objective is, um, for example, they just started uh, a collaboration project, much like uh, Bayraktar is building drones in Ukraine. Um, Iran is going to build drones in Tajikistan. And I think so all this seems to imply that like Iran's trying to go like more legit with their military drone industry, if that makes sense. Like they're not just giving them to terrorist organizations like Hezbollah anymore. They're trying to make like actual deals with nation states and maybe I don't want to say advertise, but I mean, more or less advertise that they're going legit. And this is maybe one like example of that um, in addition to the Tajikistan facility. Uh, does that make sense, Luca? Yeah, no, thank you very much. I, I understand. Thank you. Yep, no problem. But uh, yeah, right now I think um, we're. Oh, go ahead, finance. Sorry, I meant to raise my hand. But I clicked the wrong button. Yeah, I, I just note we we heard some stuff about Iran uh, months ago that Iran was shipping stuff across the Caspian to uh, Russia and actually gave back. I think like an S four hundred battery or something along those lines. It was like two three months ago, and we were like, "Well, why does is Russia like that short on things they produce themselves? Did they need one back from Iran?" Um, but it seemed as though it was more of a gesture from Iran, you know, kind of, we're, we're here in this with you, Russia. Anyway, finance. Uh, yeah, so uh, part of our discussions on the economic side, and yes, it seems that uh, as funny 